0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare
2: Religion in general, and Christianity in particular, has had kind of a child's way of looking at things. And I think when you talk to people, you'll hear them say that all that they know is what they learned in the catechism as children. Well, that's not enough for adults. You have to grow up. Part of growing up is not to take things so literally, to be able to see them more deeply and more subtly and with more complexity. If Christianity doesn't give up this childlike literalism, It's going to fade away. Fade away. Fade
0: away. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now here's your host, Brian James.
3: Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast, I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I am honored to welcome back to the podcast, author and psychotherapist Thomas Moore, who I previously had on Episodes 57 and 75. Tom has been a constant companion on my own medicine path, and one of the key inspirations and mentors for my approach to counseling others on their journey toward living a life of deeper meaning and purpose. I've had the privilege to study with Tom over the past year in his Soul Psychology course, and through that process have gotten to know him, and myself, a little better. To round off the series of interviews I've been conducting as part of an exploration of my relationship to Christianity, I thought it would be fitting to speak to Tom about his journey with Christianity, particularly how the teachings and model of Jesus have informed his soulful approach to life. We focus our conversation primarily on his 2009 book, Writing in the Sand. Jesus and the Soul of the Gospels, which offers his unique insights into the deeper meanings of Jesus' teachings and how they can help us create a happier and more meaningful life, free of dogma and fundamentalism. Well, I hope that you're nourished by our chat as much as I was. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Thomas Moore on the Medicine Path. Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce Thomas Moore once again. Tom, it's great to see you, and uh, I really appreciate you making the time to speak with me.
2: Well, I've been looking forward to it, Brian.
3: Yeah, me too. I'm really excited. Um, You know, on your online course, every time we start a session, we always begin by talking about the weather (laughs) and uh, (laughs) wondering what the weather's like for you on the East Coast there. (laughs)
2: It's cold and sunny today. I wish you could see outside of where I am right now, looking through the windows. I live on a lake, and the sun is, is kind of low in the sky, and it's just beautiful. Mm. But it's very cold. Like, you know, yeah, cold. I don't know mm. the numbers that you use, so I couldn't tell you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably around freezing, I guess.
2: Yeah, about freezing, exactly.
3: Yeah, I spoke to a friend in uh, Vermont the day before yesterday, or maybe yesterday, and behind her was a window looking out on her property, and everything was covered in snow with these big flakes oh. softly falling, and yes. she looked all cozy in a big sweater, and I just thought, yeah. uh, I, you know, here on the West Coast, it's still pretty mild, yeah. and it just looks so idyllic, and it just gave me that, um, that cozy feeling that I kind of miss.
2: It's, it's very cozy until you have to go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> right.
3: Um, well, I think as I mentioned in our correspondence, and as people who listen to the podcast will know, I've been going on this journey through Christianity and looking at it from different perspectives, um, theological, uh, mystical, Jungian. And uh, it's been a really kind of personal journey for me Wrestling with my relationship with Christianity, yeah. and uh, I know the conversations have been really resonating with people out there. So I know I'm not alone in this, trying to figure out like where Christianity fits in my life. You know, mm-hmm. it's something that I feel I have to reckon with as part of my spiritual inheritance. And uh, it's always nice to come back to Tom Moore. Um, you've got just such a uh, kind of balanced view of things, uh, I think probably owing to you being a Libra, right? You just had a yes, birthday yes, recently.
2: I, yes, yes, <laughs> it's Libra, absolutely. Yeah, and, I can never make a decision, but I have a pretty balanced view of things. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, it's something I, uh, I feel like I'm maybe growing into, and I think something that uh, you inspire in me is to... Um, you know, like Jung would say, hold the tension of the opposites, you know, be that central point between the, you know, that Libra, this Libra scales, right? Not yeah. go too heavily on one side or the other. That's right. and I really like that. Um, so I've been reading your book, Writing in the Sand, uh, Jesus and the Soul of the Gospels. And I know you wrote it uh, probably about 12 years ago or so, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I'm really loving it. I think it's great. So. good. Oh, okay. I hope you're okay with talking about some of the themes in that
2: absolutely sure
3: great well i would really love to hear uh, a little bit about your journey with christianity it's been an interesting one i know and uh some people who know your work may not know that uh the early part of that journey especially and um kind of your own wrestling with christianity
2: well it's a long story i'll try to make it short um I uh, first of all, I have to say I was born into a, a, a very devout Irish Catholic family, a working class family, very close to Ireland. I mean, not too far away. And um, I realized uh, I have spent a lot of time in Ireland and over the years and, and now, nowadays. And uh, I, I realized that my family is so Irish, I, it's unbelievable. Now I go to Ireland, it's like the same as my family. So that Irish Catholicism was very strong. It means it's uh, devout, quite uh, simple in many ways, and and, uh, quite literal. And um, so uh, I became an altar boy in the church, uh, where we went to church, uh, and I went to a Catholic school. So I had a lot of Catholicism in my early years. And so by the time I was 13, I had become quite acquainted with the priests who were running the parish there and uh, and with uh, young men who were going off to study to be priests. And I was quite uh, infatuated with the whole idea. Uh, some people would say brainwashed, but I don't know the difference really. Um, I was infatuated and uh, I wouldn't hear of anything, I had to go and join these wonderful young men I knew who were going off to become priests. And it so happened that the priests in the parish where I grew up, were um, uh, called servites, which means they were kind of half monks and half parish priests. And uh, so I I joined that uh, organization, I had to leave home at 13, and go off to this place. Uh, I was I grew up in Detroit, and they, they were in Chicago, so I had to go you know, quite a ways from home to uh, to join them at a very young age. And it was a very cool atmosphere emotionally, kind of strict and cool. But I got a tremendous education in the classics. I had probably eight years of Latin and four years of Greek, you know, I, and then plus uh, studying the, the arts and literature very intensely. So and theology. And philosophy. In fact, I went to Ireland for my philosophy studies for two years, and most of the courses were taught in Latin. So I was 19 years old and sitting in this class, and the teacher speaking to me in Latin, and I had to answer him in Latin, which was quite a, you know. When I think of it now, I wonder how I ever passed any of the exams, but I did, and uh, and had a you know kind of interesting experience that way, and. uh, and I came to a point where I was, uh, uh, it was. It was a very liberal order. I was I was educated very very well in that place, and and uh, one day I woke up and I thought, you know, I've I've done it. I've really done it. I've gone as far as I can with this. Mm-hmm. And I was only about six months before I would have been ordained a priest. And I told the man in charge. I said. It's, it's over for me. And he said, well, why don't you take a year to sort it out? And I said, no, it's over. I know. I discovered that this morning. <laughs> and, uh, and so I left there and thought I would have nothing to do with religion. I left Catholicism and Christianity and everything, all religion. I had no interest. I just wanted to get out of it. I felt I've given a lot of time, part of my life to this. And I've done it now. I don't have to do anymore. And I continued studying and I went to the University of Windsor, in Ontario, and I got a degree in uh, theology from there. And one of my professors said to me, I should get a, a PhD in religious studies. And I said, I don't want anything to do with religion. And he said, this will be pretty good. He said, this, this program is really good, you'll like it. So, so um, that was Syracuse University in New York. And um, they asked me to write a paper about what I how I thought religion should be taught. And I wrote the paper, and they gave me free tuition and a living stipend and mm. all kinds of things on the basis of that paper. So it must have been pretty interesting. And uh, so I studied there and got exactly what I needed exactly. I loved what I did for those three years, my doctoral studies. And uh, that's where I discovered Jung and uh, Hillman, James Hellman. And uh, and I've got I was really prepared to do my work then, and ever since then I've been all my books. I I think I'm working number thirty two now. They Hmm. are all about the things I learned at Syracuse, Hmm. and and also going back to my years in the monastery.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you had such a great foundation, particularly in the languages, and. Yeah, that's a big part of uh, this book, Writing in the Sand, is you getting down to the roots of some of the language that Jesus used. Yes. And um, I, I think, yeah, in particular, you point to four words that sum up what you call in the book, the Jesus way, like um, following Jesus as a way of life and a kind of attitude. Um, and I wonder if we could go through those four words, because there's a lot of misconceptions about how they've been translated, and sure. uh, I like the way you put it together. So, uh, there's metanoia, mm-hmm. basileia, agape, and therapeia. Mm-hmm. And you've got this beautiful little poem that I think maybe you wrote uh, that's inserted in the book, and it says, um, it's like a summation of the Jesus philosophy. It's like a little haiku. I love it. It's a change of heart brings you into the kingdom where you discover the power of love to heal.
2: Yes, that was just a summary up to that point. That's, I, I felt that was a summary.
3: Mm-hmm. Could you go through each of those words individually sure. and unpack sure. them for us? So starting sure. maybe with metanoia.
2: Sure. That's one that people know. They've heard a, a lot of people have anyway. So metanoia is usually translated as repentance. So it has to do with uh, uh, repenting for something that you've done wrong or bad. But if you think about the word, if you know any uh, you know any language, you know that metanoia, noia, is not about morals or ethics or anything like that. It's mind, nous it comes related to the Greek word nous, which means mind. So it has to do with your your mindset and your I think your outlook on the world the way you understand you you, yourself and the world around you meta means uh, can mean change it means beyond but it's like you move beyond you change so like metamorphosis usually means like a change of shape metamorphosis like a butterfly goes through a metamorphosis you go from you know cocoon to a big wing you know beautiful butterfly so that's the good image for metanoia, I think, becoming a butterfly after having been a little worm.
4: Hmm.
2: And uh, I think that's what the, what the Jesus uh, message is all about, is that what you have to do is go through a change in your being, in, in the way you see the world and know yourself and know the world and therefore how you live. Uh, it's a change. It's a radical change. I relate it to the Zen idea of uh, satori, or uh, hmm. you know, radical ch- change in immediate. Like sometimes, it, all the stories stories talk about an, an an instant change. Like suddenly, your whole outlook on life is transformed in a second because of something you've seen or heard. I think it's like that with the Jesus story that you hear and see his word, and it's not that you understand it intellectually so much, but You hear it and you change. You you can't you can't see the world the same after that.
3: Mm. Mm -hmm. Or uh, perhaps some of the stories, even just being in his presence, would inspire you or somehow create a change.
2: Yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Some of the stories do that, they say, just by being in his presence or in a couple of instances, touching him.
3: Another uh, term that I've really tried to understand and have trouble with sometimes because of the literal interpretation of it is uh, kingdom, basileia. Yeah. Um, And I've come to think of it maybe as a a state of consciousness. Um, And I think you get to something close to that in your book. So basileia, how do you understand that, the kingdom?
2: Yeah, the kingdom uh well, obviously it's not a not a real kingdom. It's not like he's not the king and you're not supposed to be a subject of a king. You know, now you're not going to be in a democracy anymore. That that would be foolish. But it it's an image. I, I think it's a little I don't mean to to belittle it at all, but I think it's a little like a fairy tale. When in a fairy tale we say, okay, they all the people in the kingdom now fell asleep the kingdom there in the fairy tale is like an image for uh where the community is you know all the, com- mm. the community together uh where they are and uh how they cohere, how how they uh they come they hold together as a community it's a kingdom so i think that jesus is saying now that the kingdom is here and he, that's what he says it's here it's not coming it's here and uh that means that the life that he is, as I understand it, the life that he is uh, promoting uh, creates a community of people who see the value in this way of living, and they create the kingdom. So the kingdom is like the community or the um, gathering of people who have who have seen the, the value in this teaching and uh, share those values, and they would be the kingdom.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love uh, thinking of it that way, as the community. Uh, We think the community of God, rather than the kingdom of God, is some place up in the clouds with a throne.
2: (laughs) No, I think that this is a problem. Uh, I'd have to just say it, that uh, religion in general, and Christianity in particular, has had a kind of a child's way of looking at things, but a child's religion in many ways. And I think when you talk to people, you'll, you'll hear them say that well, all that they know is what they learned uh, in, in the catechism as children. Well, mm-hmm. that's not enough for adults. You have to grow up and you have part of growing up is not to take things so literally to be able to see them uh, uh, more deeply and more subtly and with more complexity. And therefore we have to give up. if we if, if Christianity doesn't give up this childlike literalism, it, it's going to fade away. you know it can't it can't survive the fact that with all of our technology today, people are smarter than ever. and uh, they are already just drifting away in you know in large numbers from the religions because they have all they know is that literal interpretation. and uh, they just can't accept it anymore. And mm-hmm. I think the churches—it's up to them to grow up and 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 study more in a much more sophisticated way, like this idea of the kingdom. Uh, you don't promise people a pie in the sky, you know. That's that—that's all old, very, very old-fashioned. We're not going to get anywhere that way. And it bothers me because I think we need religion, and mm-hmm. uh, it's too bad that that. Uh, you know, that the, the churches, in so many instances, are retrenching. They're digging their heels in instead of moving on.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is a movement of people converting to orthodoxy. Now, West, you know, Western modern Western people, um, you know, some famously, like Paul Kingsnorth, who kind of started out as a pagan and uh, converted to, I think... Um, yeah, some kind of Eastern Orthodoxy. Yeah, and so oh, yeah. it's almost like you know. I know I talked to David Tacey, and he sees that as a kind of regressive move back. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, it's hard to hard to say. Um, I know David, and I really appreciate his intelligence. Very intelligent man. He's very um,
3: polemic, though.
2: Yeah, he is. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs>
3: it's know his
2: is. I know. Nature. Um, I know, but um, I think that. Uh, uh, it's true to some extent that it could be uh, going back, and you know there's a there's a lure in that kind of literal,
4: mm-hmm.
2: simple religion because you can you can give up a struggle to try to understand things and to adjust your life to a complex world. It simplifies things. Mm-hmm. morality is very simple: do this and don't do that, and uh, you know punishment and reward and all those things are they're really for children. On the other hand, I think that um, there is something about the religions that is worth, certainly worth keeping. Uh, I can't imagine my life without many, many religious traditions supporting me. And my background in in the Catholic Church and in Christianity, too, it's very rich, extremely rich in ways that people might think don't count, but rich in, uh, in, uh, let's say, the arts. And in uh, Mm. the theology is very rich. Uh, Some wonderful theologians in the history of Christianity. And um, a very subtle ones. Some of my favorites are extremely subtle. And um, so I can understand some draw in that direction. Mm -hmm. To have the established religion that's been around for a long time instead of kind of the things that are made up as they go today. You know, a lot of very loosely put together uh, so-called religions
3: yeah yeah I've often um kind of wished that I could just be a true believer like my life would be it would yeah. be so much simpler it would know, be it's much all, simpler <laughs> it's all kind of laid out for you and you just follow and there it is no wrestling involved
2: Another way I look at it, when I hear, I hear people every now and then tell me that they've converted to Judaism or to Christianity or to Islam or something. And um, I always think, well, that's pretty good. You know, I, I, I congratulate them and I support them. And, uh, and I warn them about the dangers in it. And, uh, but the reason I, I celebrate it is that it's a step, you know, it's a step along the way. And it doesn't have to be the final step. Mm -hmm. I'm not at all unhappy that I was a monk, Catholic monk for 13 years. I'm very happy that I had that experience. I still try to live like a monk. And I I like to to think like a monk, actually. Uh, Just today, or maybe it was yesterday, I had a long conversation about Thomas Merton, a Catholic monk. And I felt so good talking about it. It had been so long. Um, so I think there is, uh, it's a step and you don't have to make it forever and make it the only thing that ever happens in your life.
3: Mm. Hmm. Hmm. This other term that I think is sometimes misunderstood, agape, often just translated as love, but, um, that term love in English, mm, it's complicated and maybe, um, a of uh the um kind of multifaceted type of uh like the terms <laughs> it's hard for me to say there like greek has many terms for different kinds of love and yes. we've just got this one kind of love and mm-hmm. then we kind of add signifiers to it or something right. but agape how do you read that word
2: i usually translate it as respect or something along that line I think it has to do with recognizing the deep value of something or somebody and a desire to be connected to them, to that person because of that. It's not romantic love, so it's not Eros. So we can kind of strike that out. That's not what it's about. It's not even Philia, which is friendship love, although Philia certainly plays a big role. And the religious experience. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's more like valuing uh, someone deeply and wanting to be connected. That's why the word love is used. It's I've I've studied it. You know I don't know. I can't say that I I've come to a conclusion that I feel absolutely certain of. But it's in that direction that I, I would think of the word, that right. word agape.
3: Yeah. In the book, you mentioned that one of the ways it was used in early Greek uh, was in relationship to something like a, a jewel or a gem. Yeah, that's right. So Something that,
2: precious and valuable. Yeah.
3: Yeah. A sense of appreciation and valuing.
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Even that doesn't quite do it because in the context, if, when you when you read the Gospels in Greek, you come across some form of the word Agape over and over and over again, meaning many different things, obviously, from the context, different kinds of love, different kinds of desire and closeness. Uh, And so uh, when you finish with that, you think, well, it's very hard to come up with one word to say what that really means. It's because it means many things at once. However, the impression is is, couldn't be avoided that Agape is at the very center of Christianity.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's something in that too about uh, appreciating diversity. Like if we're to love our neighbors, we have to kind of appreciate that uh, different people are different. That's right. And to see the value in that um, as one of the things that holds together a community
2: Well, like in the gospel of Jesus says, love your neighbor, as you love yourself. uh, He's using the word agape. Hmm. And uh, so there's an example. You love yourself. How do you do that? You know, and that's interesting that a spiritual teacher would say, love yourself, because a lot of spiritual people think you shouldn't love yourself. Uh, But it's there. And then there's love your neighbor. So loving your neighbor how do you do that and then the examples he gives are something like the good samaritan uh, someone who's of another geographical place or culture and especially a culture that you're not too friendly with and he says love that i think it sounds very much to me like uh, uh, like some indian uh, philosophers and teachers who will say love your enemy you know i Uh, one of my friends from India, Satish Kumar, uh, wrote a book about uh, the Buddha as loving, uh, befriending uh, a a frightening uh, beast that came into a a village and community. And that would be an agape word, Mm. I think, even though it's befriend, I think it's more like agape. And so uh, I think that's what we're asked to do is to, open our hearts especially to those people that we are probably disinclined to uh to have a relationship with
3: mm mm-hmm. and then um the last word is i think one of your favorite words therapeia
2: yes it is the word therapeia is used i forget how many times 47 times in the new testament quite a bit it's used over and over again you know there are books that will tell you how many times each word is used Hmm. and i think that's uh i think it's in the 40s. and um it's often maybe all almost always translated as uh heal that jesus healed all these people but i've i've done a lot of research on this word because i'm a therapist i really wanted to know what therapy was in its essence Years ago, I was looking up this word therapy. I got to the, the 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 deepest I got into it was that therapy means comes from a word that means chair, like like you're you're on a you're on a throne or something. It's therapy, but I think of it as a therapist chair, you know, where you sit and talk to people in a healing way. Although it doesn't mean healing, I think it, the word doesn't mean to heal. It means to. Um, two things in greek it means to serve uh that's one thing it can mean uh or it can mean to care for one mm. or the other there've been there's been a lot of writing done on this idea of care in relation to therapy by the greek you know greek scholars looking at the language and that kind of thing and um so, I think that, I think, and therefore in my translations of the Gospels, I translate therapia almost always as care for. Yeah, almost always as care for, in some form of care for. I think that's the whole point that Jesus was someone who cared. It was a heart word. He wasn't really a magician. I mean, in some ways he was, but he was more a, a, a caring person, t- a caring teacher. Than a magical healer, the uh, doing the miracles was not really. I don't think he was out there to try to prove anything with miracles. That that's the way I was taught when I was a kid, but I don't mm-hmm. think that's a good way to look at it. It's more that he he teaches caring, deep deep caring. This is the way to, to be in the world. Mm-hmm. That that when you're faced with somebody, you care for them.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, Jesus as the healer. People uh, sometimes talk about him like a shaman. But the difference that I see in that is uh, that a shaman will uh, kind of go through a big ritual, put on a show, that kind of thing. And and Jesus' way to care for, to heal, seemed to come more through relationship. Like you said, it's like the the way of the heart.
2: Yes. I think that's right. And that's consistent with the whole teaching. But at the same time, it's a radical teaching because it doesn't make sense according to the usual uh, standards of modern people, the way we live. We don't don't think of befriending and caring for people that that we differ with, Uh, people of other cultures that we don't understand. Our first response seems to be to protect ourselves from them or to somehow Yeah, defend ourselves. And the Jesus way is not that. He specifically, specifically says, in relation to people, he even says, people who are your enemy, bring that caring attitude toward them. That's what you have to do. That's the way to do it. I think, you know, I was trying to, who I was trying to think of before, is that he's like Gandhi, or Gandhi's like him. Mm -hmm. You know, that Gandhi says, you know, uh, befriend your enemy. And if you can do that, that's a real test. And I think mm-hmm. that's the test of people who follow Jesus. If you can befriend your enemy, anyone you perceive as enemy, that's a real test of whether or not you're living this teaching.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you can include the other in your community, if you yeah. can allow them access to the kingdom. I mean, the whole teaching around the kingdom has been so kind of uh, exclusive and exclusionary, and that's obviously been a problem.
2: Well, I think it's quite clear that Jesus was not speaking to a particular culture or group. He was, he was speaking to the world, and mm-hmm. he says that in you know several places, uh, that he came as he says he came here he has this relationship to his father that's in the gospel of john Uh, his relationship to his father who's in the sky it's another word by the way that i i work on in that book is sky Mm -hmm. yeah heaven and sky so his father is in the sky and and uh, he's always in relationship to that kind of infinite presence whatever that is you know it's very hard to say but but an awareness that he is always he when he speaks and teaches he is representing this sky being and Mm. so it's it's something both unworldly in a way and very worldly at the same time he is both so jesus a little is a little like the messenger he's like an angel himself A messenger who goes from between heaven and earth, the sky Mm -hmm. and the earth.
3: Yeah. Yeah. When you start to think of heaven as sky, which is, I think, etymologically correct, uh, you know, it becomes, it's like, yes, sky we think of as up there, but it's also all around us. Like there's no clear division between the air we breathe and the sky up there. And then you know it makes me think about the just the word spirit related to breath, like Ruha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's it's pervasive and uh it's around us, it's in us. It's like when he says like the kingdom of heaven is um among us, well it's kind of like we're in it. If we're uh, in it, yes. We are if we it. have that shift of perspective, the metanoia. Yes.
2: And so when you go to a Christian church, a community of people who are uh, gathering there uh, thoughtfully and meditatively and prayerfully, you would expect then what you're going to find is that is all of the spirit, the spirit of, uh, the, of accepting the other, of um, being in relationship to the infinite at every step. Uh, it's very hard to use language for that because people have thought about the sky as a place where God is the puppeteer controlling everything here on earth. But another way of looking at it is that this is the way many Christian theologians have described it, is that that sky is an image for that which is really so vast you can't make, you can't say anything about it. And uh, so Many Christian theologians developed what they called the via negativa in the negative way, which is a way of saying that, um, well, it's the sky, but we don't know anything about that. Anything you say is is inadequate. And uh, and I particularly think that that teaching about the negative way in Christianity, if that were taught to people today, I think it would help make their, their, their spiritual lives much more adult and sophisticated.
3: Mm. Yeah, it helps kind of loosen the grip of uh, literalism. Yeah. Because it's like it's like the sky, but it's not it's not the sky as we think of sky. You know, yeah,
2: it's you know what I do, I compare it to Black Elk, the Native American. If you've read Black Elk Speaks, Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, he talks about the vision he had and he talks about his grandfathers and grandmothers coming down in the sky and he saw them in the sky. Well, that's a vision. You know, it's like a dream. It's a vision. And it's real. The things you see in visionary are real, but they're not literal. And uh, that's, I think, I think that would help to see that when we talk about the sky, we're not talking about anything literal, but it's real.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, for you, um, this touches on the you know, what William Blake called Jesus the imagination. So what's the role of imagination in a kind of mature, healthy spirituality?
2: That's a very, you know, very complex idea, theme, but it's uh, it's essential. Yeah, I'm a great follower of Blake. I love the way Blake puts all of that. And uh, uh, I would say that the role of the imagination then is to allow us to speak about, i like to use uh, James Ullman's words that he used later in his life, the powers that are part of life, the the life we live, we live, and the world in which we live, there are powers, like there's the power, there's the power of beauty, when you have something beautiful, that the beautiful is is manifested in some way, that has great power, the the power of, uh, let's say, something in nature that is very beautiful, people will will come to it at at great cost to themselves, uh, to be exposed to it, to have darshan with that beauty, to have some sort of experience of it and dialogue with that beautiful thing for their own spiritual development, you know, enrichment. And they don't have to understand it, it's just to be in its presence. And uh, so I think that uh, this idea of uh, the imagination has to do with being able to give us ways of imagining these powers, being able to see them, to understand, appreciate what they are. Uh, and they are, those, those images are real, but they're in the inner realm of imagination, not the realm of fact that we live in, in our day-to-day lives.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Like in some way, the imagination, uh, can help us be in relationship to these great and mysterious and sometimes invisible powers like to imagine yes. that the the mountain is a deity or is the the holy mountain or the yes. you know mm-hmm.
2: yeah so for the greeks they uh, they honor aphrodite because they know her power that the power of sex and sensuality and beauty and the beauty of nature. These are real powers. They're important aspects of life on Earth. They're important things to cultivate and to be, maybe be afraid of at times, and to realize that those powers are going to affect us and move us. Um, but we're not saying that if you find the right mountain, you're gonna see this woman there whose name is Venus. It's not. That's not the way it works. And yet the image we have, the images we have, like let's say a, a statue of Venus, makes that power present in a way. And so uh, it is real, but it's not literal.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of the Greeks, in, in your book, you point to two aspects of Jesus that have parallels with earlier Greek fig- figures, uh, Jesus the Epicurean and Jesus the Dionysian.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, the Epicurean. I know.
3: I know you love uh, Epicurus, so I do. maybe start start with that relationship. <laughs> okay. Jesus, the Epicurean.
2: Epicurus was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, uh, early one. Like I, I'm not sure of his dates. I think it was third century, but I'm not positive. Um, and he ta- traditionally he taught. I mean, the way the story goes, his biography. He taught in his garden at his home, and he taught men and women. And he didn't. He didn't teach only the high-level people in the society. He talked to people who are kind of rejects in some ways. He was very inclusive. And he, he taught the philosophy that pleasure is a, is one of the most important factors in life. And what we do is seek pleasure, and it's very important to have pleasure in everything we do. Um, and But he didn't mean hedonism. It's not that kind of pleasure. For example, with food, he uh, he was a vegetarian and he he ate very little really, he didn't eat a lot. We know that at the end of his life, he asked someone to bring him a grape. You know, it wasn't like he's, <laughs> he's asking for huge meals and yet we've come to take that word Epicurean to mean someone who eats too much. Um, but he's he's a very devout person who talks about the importance of pleasure in life. I think that's very, very important. And so we see Jesus Very often in the stories of him eating, dining, actually dining with people, he dines with all sorts of people. Uh, The the scholars of the Gospels call this commensality. It's the word they use. Mensa means table, and what he means is that Jesus eats with people at his table that were not necessarily the most respected people. He eats with anybody. He that. Commensality is one of his virtues. He eats with a lot of people, and uh, we have story after story. And there's one interesting story that I love, where he's uh, he's he's resurrected. He's been crucified and he's resurrected. And his students are out in a boat, and they're talking about Jesus and they wish they could see him again. And they see this fire on the beach, and they get as they get closer, they realize someone's cooking on the beach. And as soon as they see him cooking fish, someone says, "It's Jesus."
3: Someone <laughs> <laughs> a bonfire on the beach, <laughs> cookout.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then that's him. You know, they recognize him. That's how
3: they know him. Yeah, he's.
2: And and there's another one. I have to say, he's he's resurrected again, and he appears to his students in in their room. He just appears to them, and he says, uh, "I have resurrected." And he says, uh, "Is there any food?" That's the next next statement right after I have resurrected. Really? any food. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I'm not making this up. There's actually at least one book I know of that's been written about Jesus and food and going through all of these different stories. Mm. So that's part of the Epicurean nature. He gathers people together. The Last Supper is a gathering of his friends. And he makes a big deal of where to have it and what to have there who's going to be present and and he kind of you know he's also the kind of the planner he, he takes he's like a host people. yeah he's the host I mean and, funny
3: we use that word for the yeah, right the wafer right
2: <laughs> that's right yeah. so then uh, the whole mystery of the Last Supper is so great and yet it's all about uh, dinner food so I think that all of these and many many other indications of Jesus, is quite Epicurean in his style. And yet, I think Christianity has been just the opposite. You know, at least I know, the the way I experienced it was, don't have any pleasures, you know? If if anything looks good to you, you can't have it.
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm. In fact, um, you know, in some orders, it's about uh, suffering.
2: Yeah, Uh, it is about suffering. Wearing a
3: hair shirt all day long.
2: Yeah, that's right. So Epicurus would never wear a hair shirt uh so i know uh but uh i think most people probably wouldn't do that but i don't think we are we are taught the full story unless we include when we teach this story and how to live this life that we have to seek pleasure too like good pleasures and the main the main pleasure that epicurus taught was friendship Mm -hmm. so he said that friendship is the deepest pleasure and that's what you really have to go for so that would be a terrific thing to uh, to to teach within the Christian context.
3: Mm-hmm. I was talking uh, with someone the other day about this, their relationship to uh, sweets and indulgences. And I was talking about how if you slow down and really enjoy the first piece of chocolate, you may find that you're um, totally satisfied and then you won't want to eat the whole thing. Yes. So it's kind of about slowing down and enjoying that one grape like uh, yes. epicurus.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's not over, overdoing with anything but including food is uh, it, uh it, or alcohol, you know, drink or anything like that. Overdoing it is really uh it weakens the whole thing. It takes away from rather than adds to
1: experience. Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, it's, so there's a kind of a wisdom in that moderation that's included in Epicurean, Epicureanism.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, there's something, I think you, when you talk about the kingdom too, uh, you talk about presence. It's a quality of being present. Um, and so there's something about that too, in the enjoyment. If you're really present while you're having that glass of wine or the grape or the piece of chocolate, yes. you're going to really enjoy it and savor it.
2: Yes. Uh yes, I think our our tendency, we have it, some of us, uh you know, at times, especially maybe in our lives, we might overdo some pleasure that we have. When you overdo, you can you can bet that you're you're not really doing it right. That's a sign, that's a symptom. So you watch it and say, Oh, I'm eating too much. Well, it doesn't mean you should stop eating, it means you should eat in a better way.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, well, <laughs> maybe the flip side of that is what we associate with um, Dionysus. And so, you know, tell us about the, um, how do you put it, Jesus the Dionysian?
2: Yeah, that's not my idea. It's been around for hundreds of years, at least, uh, that they've, people have related, the theologians have related Jesus to the Greek god Dionysus. Uh, now, the Dionysian, have to say a word, it's about uh, it's about life and death, uh, realizing that when you live life, to really have the full joy of life, you have to also die to things and deal with endings and losses, things like that. If you can do that, where you are dismembered, the myth of Dionysus has him as a child being dismembered, and uh, they... Uh, early christian theologians connected that myth with jesus being on a on the cross crucified and having uh, nails in his hands and a sword in his side as dismembering like a dionysian dismembering that's the death part of it all and the bright part of it would be uh, the joy of life of really living in ecstasy the other the other the opposite word would be ecstasy in the dionysian uh, that that you are uh, the story was you you eat the God's flesh and you to get the God in you, so that's very close to Jesus too with eating the flesh, eating the drinking eating bread and drinking wine as a Dionysian experience, but I think it's also about the way of life, so that uh Following Jesus and his example, you live this life and you may, people may not understand you or accept you when you live that kind of life, a life of caring and uh, not, you know, treating your enemies decently and that kind of thing. Um, people don't like that. You know, people say, well, you're you're betraying us then. You should be against our enemy. So... Uh, And, you know, we've had examples like St. Francis. There's a great story of St. Francis going over to talk to one of the uh, uh, sultans uh, in the Arab countries. He was a scandal to a lot of Christians because he shouldn't be consorting with those enemies. Hmm. But he understood this is the Christian way. This is the way to do it. You love your enemies. That means you talk to them Hmm. and you, uh, you get to know them. And that's what that's what St. Francis did. so uh I think that that's Dionysian as well, and with uh, with Jesus, uh, Dionysus is also associated primarily with wine, because when you drink wine, especially if you have a you know a good portion of wine, you get kind of wobbly or you kind of get uh, dismembered in a way through the wine. The wine does that. It intoxicates and inebriates. And um, so Jesus was called the Dionysian. And then what the theologians took note of was that the very first story about his teaching life, he's at a wedding party. The Gospel of John, he's at a wedding party. Mm -hmm. And uh, his mother tells him they've run out of wine. That's all she says. It's interesting his mother would be there with him. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, and he says, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me, but then he tells the people to look in to, to try to drink something that was in the uh, jars that were made that were present there for purification waters. So when people came into a house, we don't do this, but in some cultures, people, when they enter the house, they put their hands in water or something with, with water like that as a symbol or a sign that they are cleansing themselves, they're coming in clean, clean of heart, you know, clean of intention. And Jesus said, uh, take those purifying jars and taste them. So the the uh, the wine, the, the wedding planner checked out the wine. He said, this is great. Why do you keep this terrific wine? And maybe nobody's going to get it. <laughs> you haven't done anything with it. And uh so Jesus is not only interested in bringing wine into the story, a very first story of, uh, of his work, but uh, he's a terrific, really a good maker of wine. And I think <laughs> that that is quite unusual in the stories of spiritual teachers. I think that's something that should be celebrated, that Jesus is Dionysian, that's part of his reality. And uh, that's about, joy. Now, hmm. Carl Jung, I wish I had this quote with me, because there's a wonderful quote from a letter from Carl Jung to Freud, where he says that if only Christianity would embrace the ecstatic joy of the Dionysian world, um, many, many problems would be solved. He doesn't use those words, but that's the sentiment.
4: Hmm. Hmm. Hmm.
3: Yeah, I love that, because um the parallel between Jesus and Dionysus is sometimes used by people who want to discount the historical Jesus and just say, well, it's just like a a modification of an age-old story or something like that. But I like yes. how you draw out um how it's uh it's the qualities that are, are parallel in the the celebration and the renewal of life and things like that. Yeah.
2: Yes. I have a very good friend who's written some books about Jesus as myth as a myth. And uh I think that I like what he's written. I think it's quite interesting. But uh that's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that uh that Jesus has qualities like we can. You and I could have qualities. We could be Dionysian, we could be Hermetic, we could be Venusian, you know, we could be all these things. And what it means is that this is a quality that uh that maybe we haven't really cultivated, but it's in us by nature.
4: hmm
3: Yeah. Um, so going back to the idea of Jesus the healer, Therapeia, um, I mean, you point out that healing was one of his primary activities in the Gospels. And when you're talking about what it means to be a healer, you say that we can all be healers if we embody some of these jesus qualities and you tell a story about how your friend james hillman kind of served this role for you at a really tough time in your life um can you share that anecdote because i think it, it it sums up your idea here about how we can all be healers
2: well if i'm remembering correctly that story uh there was a time when i was uh, things are falling apart for me i the main thing was that I was uh, I was at a university, uh, a prof- assistant professor at a university in religious studies, and loving it and wanting to teach there all my life. And one day they told me that uh, they didn't want to give me tenure. they wouldn't keep me, in other words, in the post. And I was shocked because I had worked so hard to you know be a good teacher there. I understood that my philosophy of teaching was different from the people around me. So I was not wasn't too much of a surprise, but I was really, I mean, I, I remember I had to go to the doctor several times right after that, because I was having so many symptoms from just coming out of me, you know, this anxiety and disappointment and disillusionment. So I, Jim Hillman and I were, were, uh, were good friends. And we often went out to dinner together. And, uh, I just put my, my, my earpiece in my water. I hope I <laughs> that's happened to me before. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, Jim came over to my house. He knew what was going on. And he brought a bottle of, of wine with him. And uh, by himself, you know, I, I mean, I've always been with him. Well, we used to go out to dinner, but not, he didn't come over to the house too often. It was usually with groups, with, with a lot of people and um so he came over he just showed up at my door one night and he said look we've got to just drink and talk and so he he uh we had a glass of uh, of port I think it was and we sat there and he gave me some really good tips I think about how to handle he had been through a lot himself tremendous amount much worse than I had and um and I remember one thing he told me that night was, uh, he said, look, he said, I know you're very, really it's, he said, it's depression, the loss of his career and everything. He said, so he said, I would suggest that you put it in a suitcase. Think of it that way. Put it in a suitcase and carry it around with you. But don't identify with it. You know, your depression,
3: it. put your depression in a,
2: in a imaginal
3: suitcase. suitcase, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> carry it with you, like, don't, don't try to get rid of it. No. But don't identify with it. Don't get too wrapped up in it. That's it. And then the suitcase, you can like put it on the table every now and again and and take a look at it and hmm, maybe feel into it. That's right. Hmm. Put put on your depression for a while.
2: (laughs) Was that the story you were referring
3: to? Yeah, yeah. I, I just love that how, like what therapy in the kind of real world can look like between, you know, just average normal people like how we can all be healers by um just being a friend to others and listening and talking and sharing a a bottle of port if need be you know
2: yeah well neither jim nor i drank very much but for us to have a tiny glass (laughs) was quite a quite an event
3: <laughs> wow, <it> sounds Dionysian.
2: <laughs> it was. Well, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> that's exactly what it was. And he was very aware of, uh, you know, symbol and image. He knew what was going on. Uh,
3: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. Well, one aspect of this that you do talk about in the book is uh, so part of him being a healer is also him exercising demons. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, how do you read these stories now, and how might these stories about exorcism, um, how might we draw some meaning from them today in the modern world?
2: Um, well, I think most of us probably know what it's like to be possessed. Uh, you might be possessed, with, uh, you might uh, go out looking for a car or a house or something, and you find something that you really like and you are possessed like you can't stop thinking about it and you you know you tell people and you try to get some money together at least that's my experience of it and uh, that's a possession we all get possessed at times you might be possessed by jealousy i mean i went through that i think when i was in my late 30s i went through a terrible time of jealousy for a while and uh it was just awful you know just terrible definite a possession and when it left I knew it was like you know it just left within a matter of minutes it just left like a possession like a demon coming out uh, so I think it's a real thing that we could possess we could possess by so many things some are more subtle than that but we do get possessed it's a real thing and uh, part of caring for people is to deal with help them with their possessions what they're possessed by and like like, you know, a lot of people are possessed by religion, you know. They think it's a good thing, but their their whole will is gone. They're, they're just, they're away. They're not even present. And uh, mm. their friends have a very hard time getting through to them. So in order to find the way, how do, you, how do you exercise that?
1: Mm-hmm. How do
2: you get rid of it? Not easy. It's not easy. It's almost like it takes, you have to know the right act, the right ritual, the right gesture to be able to help people get get those get beyond those possessions.
3: Yeah. Or um maybe related to that uh, kind of fundamentalism is being possessed by like a self-righteousness.
2: Yes. Oh yes. You can be possessed by anything really.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but like so as um going back to that idea like that we can all be healers, uh you know, how how can we help someone to exercise their demons, whether it's addiction or grandiosity or you yeah. know fixation on an um ideology?
2: It's very difficult. I think the first step is to be able to befriend that person, so show your friendship, and then show that you are not your purpose is not to interfere with them and change them. Your purpose mm-hmm. is to be with them in this and try to you know, help them uh, deal with it in any way, you know, they mm-hmm. want to or can. Uh, you don't come in and say, oh, I'm going to drive out that that evil spirit from you. Um, yeah. It may be doing, it may be necessary to be there. A lot of times these possessions in the end are actually quite good. You know, they, they have benefits. So, um, you don't. like you
3: said, it could be a good stage that you just need to go through
2: absolutely it could be something you have to go through it's it's a step along the way and i think that way about my uh when i mentioned i've felt this jealousy at a point in my life it's very embarrassing i hated that you know mm-hmm. why i have that.
3: To... i know that feeling
2: yeah and uh and yet i i've often thought that this happened when i was really beginning to be a therapist and i often thought that that was my initiation because after that was over Mm. um i really felt i even during it i felt i could do therapy okay but i felt that once that i went through that that i had i had really come somewhere through it not -hmm. that i learned anything i don't know if i learned anything (laughs) but i went through it
3: yeah yeah i know what you mean and yeah kind of being, really going through that, really being possessed by something for a period of time, when it leaves you, it does feel like a purification or an exorcism of that particular demon. And of course, there's some others lined up behind yeah. that one. <laughs>
2: yeah, they're always there's always something.
3: <laughs> Ready to take their turn. <laughs> there's always uh, something.
2: What... But, it, but it, yeah, it's like steps of initiation. And uh, so I think the G- stories of Jesus uh, exercising demons, if you read it again, not so literally, mm-hmm. uh, it's very, very good and very helpful.
1: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss
0: spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
3: You've described yourself as a Zen Catholic. Oh yeah,
2: that was a while (laughs) ago.
3: <laughs> well, I love um, this description. You said uh, that your spirituality is so baked into life that it's barely invis- that it's uh, almost invisible. It's so baked into your life that it's almost uh, invisible. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, first of all, do you still identify as a Zen Catholic?
2: Um, yes, I do certainly. Yes, yeah, yes, I would. What does that yes. mean? Well, what it means to me is that uh, my, my uh, grow, having grown up Catholic uh, and then really, in a way, left, left it at a certain level, a certain kind of Catholicism. But I was writing something in a new book the other day, and I wrote this sentence that, as a Catholic, this is how I feel. And I thought, that's unusual for me to say as a Catholic. But I do feel that once a Catholic always, and that's who I am, and that's my identity very deep down, and I'm happy with it as I interpret it. I'm not happy with what the Catholic Church is doing these days, you know, generally. Um, But, uh, so it's not about an institution. I'm not even, you know, I'm not even, at a point where I used to be very involved in the Catholic liturgy, the rituals, and I'm a musician, so I did a lot of an awful lot of work with the music of uh, Catholic rituals. Mm. I, I, you know, conducted Gregorian chant for years, and uh, mm. and I wrote music for the masses, for the, uh, you know, the rituals, and. Um, it's very being in the monastery it was we did these things very very uh thoroughly i mean we did every little every little piece of it with long chants and you know we had to learn all these uh, songs and things so um but even now i don't like i love it but i don't i don't miss it you know i don't want it anymore because of the associations i think if it were a certain context i could do it but uh, where the church has gone, I just can't go with them at all. And they don't want me. It's been clear. So <laughs> I still get, I, I mean, now I know if I still get, but over the years, I've had many invitations to speak uh, in Catholic churches. And I feel that they've been invitations from very open-minded priests uh, and sisters who invited me. I remember once though, uh, this is probably totally irrelevant, but I was uh, invited to speak at this very large conference. And it was in Los Angeles at, uh, at a convention center. So it was really big. And the, I was, had a driver come to pick me up, to take me to this place. And we arrived at the doors to go in and I'd say about 50 people were walking in front of the doors with, uh, you know with signs. Protesting, so I asked the driver. I said, "Well, what are they protesting?" He said, "You," <laughs> <laughs> and I was so surprised. <laughs> I didn't think I was really worth wor- worthy of protest. But um, so I've had the trouble that way. But at the same time, to me, to be Catholic is uh, is very rich, very rich thing. And I think people today could be very good. Catholic- I know they can. I have friends who are very good Catholics, and they get so much from it tremendous. Um, now, I also have got a lot from Zen. I get my my Zen from a lot of reading. I'm not a kind, I've read every, you know, I learn everything through a book. I mean, everything. I learn how to swim from a book. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I'm just a book person. And uh, so I've done most of, my, most of my Zen through reading, but I have many Zen friends that have been to Zen, Zen you know, situations. Uh, so um, I feel that the Zen, as I know it, is uh, is a good complement to my Christianity, because Zen is the Zen I like. The Zen that I appreciate is that kind of Zen that doesn't make anything uh, doesn't uh, make anything too big. Uh, you kind of pull the. I think Zen is about pulling the rug out from under almost anything that you settle on. Mm. It's trying to keep you open and fresh. So combining that with uh, being a Catholic, I think it's a pretty good, pretty good combination. So I keep calling myself a Zen Catholic.
4: Mm.
3: Interesting. Are you working on a new book that has something to do with emptiness, right?
2: Well, yes, I, I thought you were talking about another one, but yes'm I'm t- I'm, uh, I have a book coming out I have a book coming out in May called "The Eloquence of Silence, which brings in that monk life, a lot of silence uh, in, in in the monk's life, and also the emptiness of the East. So there's a Zen Catholic again. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've done is I've collected a number of thirty stories some of them traditional stories, most of them traditional stories. Uh, People have had a a tradition of telling stories about empty things, simple empty things, an empty plate, an empty pot, an empty cup, an empty room, you know, things like that. But the the, the story then is you're supposed to understand that it is about emptiness, and the way you are, that that, that your ambitions are empty you can have ambitions to do things but they have to be empty that is you can't take them literal literalism gets in the way of emptiness and let's say too much fervor gets in the way of emptiness uh, exclusiveness gets in the way of being empty mm-hmm. so uh, th- this book is really about how to refine our idea of what it means to be empty and uh through stories. So I present these stories, and then I uh, offer commentaries on the stories.
3: Doesn't hmm. that, uh, I think this word shows up in the Gospels, uh, kenosis. Yes. Doesn't it have something to do with emptying out?
2: As far as I know, it, it doesn't actually appear in the Gospel itself. It hmm. appears in uh, in uh, St. Paul. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's that's it. Kenosis means to empty. Yeah, um, came across that word just yesterday. I was using the word cenotaph in my writing. Cenotaph means like a tomb mm. that is not where the body is, but just a tomb that's a memorial. So it's empty. It's an empty tomb. Mm. So it's like that empty. You know, like there's a that would be a story, an image of emptiness right there. So you mm. think about what that implies. What kind of emptiness is that? You know uh one of the stories is Jesus right you know they they go to the tomb and they find it empty. That's a big right. emptiness, big emptiness story in christianity, one of the maybe the biggest one,
3: yeah, not one that uh has been made made much of, I think, like because you also talk about uh the one story in the Gospels, the woman carrying the big um jug of i think grain. And as she's walking, it gradually she doesn't realize yes. one of the handles is broken, and it's right. emptying out. Right. By the time she gets home, and you say that that relates to, I think, the idea of the kingdom.
2: Yes, that's the kingdom. Well, that's it's not me. That's what that's from the Gospel of Thomas, and uh, it says at the end of the story or at the beginning, I forget which. This is a story of the kingdom, mm. or this is what the kingdom is, something like that. And uh, then we have this story. The kingdom is like that. It's like a sack that has a hole in it. <clears throat> Doesn't sound too promising. And yet, <laughs> uh, when you think of emptiness, it makes sense.
3: Yeah. So if I empty myself of all my prejudices and preconceptions, yeah. then I'm kind of open to that. Um, the the larger sense of community and um, accepting people for who they are and inviting them in. That's right. All, all of that. All so it's very important. I can see the, the Zen very Catholic important.
2: thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All that's that. where it comes in. Kenosis, but going back to that, you just mentioned there, emptying. That's what kenosis is. It's the emptying of oneself. So that's what they were referring to Jesus as emptying himself to let the will of the Father be expressed. Emptying mm. of his own will. So at the, on the cross, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Something like that. Um, that's emptying that's kenosis,
3: mm-hmm makes me think about um like getting together with a friend when you're uh when you're feeling down or or burdened with something and and talking it out
2: yeah, talking it out emptying kind of it yeah.
3: emptying yourself and that may be taking the place of the formal confession yes in, in the church yeah.
2: that's right. I never thought of it that way. The confession could be a kenosis in a way, kind of an emptying. Yeah. The other word for emptiness, when where things are empty is shunyata, that's in Sanskrit. So that's from the Eastern side. Uh, Shunyata is uh, been much written about in the East, uh, many, many long treatises about shunyata and emptiness. So it's a very big thing in the East emptiness. But it's not so big in the West, because we, we don't even think worry about being empty.
4: Yeah, we want to we keep want, filling ourselves we up. We want to
2: fill up.
3: <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to, you know, I'm kind of bringing it around to how um, your whole journey and uh, your kind of invisible spirituality oh, yeah. uh, shows up in your life. And um, I, I know that your wife is uh, a practicing kundalini yogi, right?
2: She and, was. She isn't anymore. Yeah, she was.
3: Uh, okay. Yeah. I think at the time that you wrote the book, she still was. Yeah, and, she would uh, be. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That was only recently that she changed. Yeah.
3: Okay. And then I think even your daughter, she's pretty well known in the kind of Kundalini oh, scene yeah. as a, as a singer. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to guess that you don't think that it's particularly or especially important that, uh, that a couple shares the same spiritual beliefs and practices. Is
2: that right, or does certain been... I think it's a good thing, really. <laughs> yeah, really
3: <laughs> too.
4: Yeah, because
2: because then you're not fusing. Uh, Jim Hillman used to always complain about fusing in relationships. You know, fusing. He said that's what makes them all fall apart. They fuse, hmm. and so that kind of being in the same spiritual place. I mean, it can be very nice. I understand that couples to be able to share and share that. But there's also value and when you where you don't share the same thing because you don't have to do it all together you know it's like we have some variety I think it's also good for children to have variety instead of one thing so our kids uh, we I have two kids and uh, when they were small uh, we would go to a Catholic Mass with them uh, on Sundays very often uh, in a sort of monastic setting and um so they got that and then they they learned all the all the uh sikh uh kundalini stuff from from my wife we knew a lot of people in that community so we knew a lot about and i was i I felt i got a lot from the association with the people i met and knew and some of the ideas that i i picked up in from their community so I thought it was very, an enriching experience. I don't see the need to have it shared thing.
3: Hmm, That's interesting. Um, I'm just noticing the time, but I did want to yeah. talk about this, maybe to finish on this point. Okay. So we've talked about Jesus, Jesus uh, in his kind of different roles and the different uh, aspects of him, and, um, but we haven't talked a lot about the Christ. And you say that the secret of the meaning of the gospels lies in the word Christ. It represents the transformation from ordinary, unconscious living to a life on fire with meaning and purpose. And then you go on to talk about um, the Christ nature in relationship to like Buddha nature. So, is Christ nature, do you see that as being different than Buddha nature and offering its own unique things? Yes.
2: Yes, I think it's different, yeah. I'm, the Buddha is not, is not Christ. Well, you
3: know, some people, the kind of list, would say that, you know, there's one know. being incarnating I in know. these different forms. I, know. I,
2: know. I, don't, I don't buy it. Uh, yeah, me to neither. Me, <laughs> to me, they are different. Hmm. And it's good that they're different. Um, so, uh, uh, but I say Christ, the word Christ means oil. And like chrism means oil. I think I, I don't know if it's that place, but I I, re, I have a chapter heading somewhere where it says the man of oil.
3: Yeah,
4: yeah. You know, that he's... he's the olive, olive
2: oil man. The olive oil man. <laughs> <laughs> so I, th- I figured that that's really an interesting thing that, that people use. Again, that goes back to the theme of... The, of Spirituality being in the natural world, mm. so oil, olive oil, is, has this capacity, and we know for many religions to anoint, you know, to make people give them great power. Uh, kings and queens sometimes have oil anointing as well. So anointing is one way of, uh, of, uh, I don't know what to call it, of uh, initiating a person into their powers. Into the powers that they have now, and you know, well, they're like a priest. When someone becomes a priest, they get anointed.
4: Mm-hmm. When
2: someone dies and dying, they're anointed. You know, it's like mm-hmm. they're they're getting ready for this transformation. And uh, so, uh, I think that Christ. It's funny because the word Christ is like saying oil. That's that's what it is. And that's the essence of what he is then. He has been anointed for this role. And mm-hmm. um, he's the anointed one. It's not a secular role. It's a spiritual role. That's what anointments usually are. Even with a king and queen, there would be kind of a spiritual role. So um, that makes uh, the Christ so interesting that it's, it's more than the man jesus it's it may be it may be that the man jesus is christ but christ is different from the man jesus that is that this is the anointed christ jesus anointed to be at this level where he has the powers and the authority to uh transform the world really to be in that position
3: mm mm-hmm. well and this goes to something um that's maybe one of the reasons why people end up uh, picketing <laughs> your talks at Catholic <laughs> conventions. But you, you go on to say that we could all add the name Christ to our names yes. if we were to dedicate our lives to, finding, um, to living out purpose and meaning.
2: Yes, we could be anointed to really do this job. I think that's what we do with priests. We anoint them to be priests. And if they were really doing the job, priest, when you think of it in other religions, especially, think of it in bigger terms. This is a very, very special role to play. And uh but any of us could be anointed. In fact, I think we are, aren't we? In confirmation and in the Catholic Church, anointed to be. Isn't there an anointing that goes on there?
4: I don't picture. know.
3: I didn't grow up in the church.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's right. I have to look it up. Sorry, I'll look. In, I'll look it up. That's my my memory from seven years old. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that the Christ is different and very important. And I think that these images of Christ, as opposed to the images of Jesus, are really good because what they do. I would also say this is imaginal man. You know, this is. This is a, Christ is is taken out of the realm of the, of the human to be at another dimension. He introduced into the realm of the spiritual imagination, mm-hmm. where he plays a role then in the spiritual lives of people, not just as a man, but as a figure. Mm-hmm. Figure. It's very
3: yeah, would that that's something I've been thinking about is. Um jesus is embodying the anthropos the archetype of the yeah. whole human not yeah. perfect in the way of uh, all good but whole actually which reminds mm. me of what jung said i'd rather be whole than good
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i'd rather be bad than whole myself but...
3: <laughs> yeah part of me would definitely enjoy being bad more than whole <laughs> wants to get rid of all the good yeah uh-huh.
2: I'm, not, I'm not too big on whole. Um, no, oh, that's no. interesting. No, so there uh, you
3: part with Jung as well, maybe.
2: I do, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sadly. Um,
3: well, holing maybe is something that uh, is happening, but never complete. Would you? No, no, not Sorry, even that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no pursuit of wholeness. No, no. You sound no I, like think, I think
2: wholeness is too uh, is a little too. Well, yeah, with Hillman complains because it doesn't primarily allow for multiplicity or the polytheism of the soul. Uh, and my complaint is that it, there's a sentimentality about it. And sentimentality in these areas tends to weaken whatever it is we're dealing with. Sentimentality, oh, let's all be whole and, you know, I'm reaching wholeness. Um, when you are dealing with the multiplicity of all the different things that are pressing on you, you don't get much of a sense of sentimentality there. It's a tough job, you know, and you mm-hmm. you struggle and you get through it and you are enriched by it and there's joy, but not wholeness. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any need for it.
3: Well, yeah, maybe it's just the way we think about wholeness because um, when you think about the uh, multiplicity, the polytheism of the soul and uh, all of that, I think about just when we allow for that, that's allowing for wholeness like all of different doesn't mean mashing them all together into one integrated unit or something yeah to me anyway it just means okay. kind of opening my mind up to that uh, multiplicity like yeah. yeah
2: could I say something um uh that we we didn't follow up on a few minutes ago I know yeah. you don't have too much time I guess but I've got
3: as much <laughs> time as as you do
2: just a couple of minutes. Um, mm-hmm. really, to me, a very important idea you brought up is this idea of, of having a spirituality invisible in life, in the world,
1: mm. in ordinary
2: life. That's what I like about Zen, is that I think the, the Zen that I follow, which is, I get primarily, not only, but primarily from uh, Shunryu Suzuki, uh, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. I know a lot of his a lot of his students they they're they're, they i don't know why i just managed to meet a lot of them but but i've i've so i have a lot of his writings and i i like what he does a lot of keeping things ordinary and uh, nothing like he has one chapter called one of his books called nothing special you know it's (laughs) like i like that approach very much and so for me uh, if your spirituality isn't part of your being in the world, the physical world, and doing your life work, and 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 being, you know, having a relationship of some kind, and raising children, whatever it is you do, um, then it, to me it doesn't really matter. It doesn't exist. It's probably an escape. Uh, the escape aspect of spirituality is uh, is very subtle, and I think it goes on a lot more than we would like it to. So i like to be able to, that's what I say. It's either here in the world, it's in my day in life, or it doesn't exist.
3: Mm. Mm. Yeah, one, uh, one kind of image um, that I always, it's like what I feel like I aspire to in terms of living up my spiritual life is the Zen gardener. Who doesn't really, he doesn't talk about any of that stuff. He doesn't talk about spirituality. It's just all no. in how he carries himself and what he pays attention to. That's it. Yeah. And that's what inspires me is um, not to be. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. The ordinary, nothing special. Yeah. In that way, if you say nothing in particular is special, then it's all special.
2: Yeah, that's right. In a way it's all special. Yeah.
3: Beautiful. That's right. Well, um, I had the honor and the privilege of studying with you for the past year in your online soul psychology course and i I wanted to leave some time here uh to talk about that course because it's going to be ongoing right
2: yes it is
3: so can you say a few words about that and um i mean just personally as a bit of a testimonial it's just really helped uh enrich my life and that includes the counseling work i do but just my everyday life Uh, uh what you do is you Curate um, stories, poems, ideas, pieces of music, and uh, point them toward, uh, well, sometimes some different psychological concepts, but not always, just aspects of life. And so for me, it's about deepening and enriching your life, whether you're a, um, a therapy practitioner or not. And uh, I just, I love your approach with that. Uh, feels like true education to me, is uh, you draw things out of people, and um, you you kind of, uh, through your participation in the course and your engagement with it, you you make of it uh, what you want or what you're willing to put into it, um, yeah. So just tell us what's happening with that course in the, down the road.
2: Okay, let me say first, it's been my honor and joy to have you in that course. Mm really amazing because you you really take some you take something on and you do something with it and you have a born leadership and you brought that to that course so I'm very very happy with that um i we're going to continue what it is it's uh, six it's six courses in a series and a that takes about a year to complete the whole thing with breaks in between the courses each course is six weeks long and each lesson a lesson. There are six lessons in each course. And they. so we get 36 lessons in a year. And each lesson, I provide very short readings. I. I, I it's not about heavy readings, very focused. So I select passages from things that I think are worthwhile, very worthwhile. And um, sometimes, uh, and I include usually a painting or something, a sculpture, something to contemplate with each uh, reading and um and then uh we meet once a week for an hour and not in zoom but in uh, what the platform is called rizuku which has sort of a chat typing format and allows me to it's a little easier compared to a zoom open mic kind of thing Mm -hmm. and uh, i like it very much it has been it has been beyond my expectations that I've seen people take the course and just change their lives. And, uh, I don't know. I wonder if sometimes I wonder if they just pick up my excitement for the ideas. I'm very excited about these things that I teach. I don't teach anything that I'm not really interested in Mm -hmm. that I think is worthwhile. And I, I tell people when they join that there are two principles here, friendship and pleasure. I have, uh, Epicurus of mine, for both of those words, friendship and pleasure. That's the way he taught. Those were his virtues. And uh, so I try to do that. I try to create a friendly atmosphere. Not that everyone has to be friends, but that friendship is the spirit of the thing, as well as finding pleasure in all the things we do. That's what I want. can't get it all the time, but that's what I'm trying for. And... um, Let's see, what else can I say? Um, we cover um, everything I'm interested in, everything I've done. They cover, we cover some things from my books. It's not all about my books. Uh, we we explore a little bit of Jungian psychology. We explore a lot of James Hillman's archetypal psychology and a lot of my own, which is different. I'm, the, I'm neither Hillman nor am I Jung. And, uh, mm. I differ with both of them, even though I take so much from each of them. So I include my own ideas about things. And um at the end of it, I people seem they seem pleased. I don't know, for the most part. I know they're very we've I've had maybe 125, 150 people go through the classes now. And I I think my guess is only a few have not been happy, you know. Very mm-hmm. few, as far as I can tell, everyone's very happy and they feel that they've gone through deep changes. I've had some people who are in therapy with me at the same time as they do the course, and it's amazing how the two go together. They really that's mm-hmm. really intense intense exposure, and uh, yeah. I see that I see the big transformations. So I'm very happy to um, have more new people. We're going to start in January again. And we meet on Wednesdays at noon Eastern time, U.S. Eastern time. That allows people where, where, like where you live in that Godforsaken forsaken place. Uh, <laughs> no, that beautiful place, absolutely beautiful place uh, to join us and people in Europe. Unfortunately, Australians have to get up at 2 a.m. or else uh, mm. listen to it on recordings. Yeah. But it's been a great joy. I, I I can't tell you. I just can't wait to start up again. It's going to be mm-hmm. just slightly different this time. I think we're going to add uh, uh, a Zoom a Zoom day like I'm not sure how yet exactly, but we're going to have a day one of those lessons will be an open kind of an open mic Zoom mm-hmm. session.
3: Yeah. Well, it's great because when you um do the weekly presentations like you said the chat window's open and you always take time at the end to go through people's questions and comments yes. and and address them so it feels quite uh, up close and personal which is nice and i for me i one of the things i appreciate about it is the kind of the style of the the school or the course uh it's not just Mm, inhaling a bunch of information it's very it's engaging if you want to show up for it uh, and yeah. that's that's the invitation is um here's here's a little idea or here's an image or a concept now you know, how does it show up in your life? Uh, what does this mean to you and so it feels quite like egalitarian or something um uh, yeah, it's nice I hope so
2: I hope so yeah I, refreshing I, I, aim, I aim for that. Yeah. yeah, I've I've thought about education ever since I started. I, well, all my life, I think. I, when I was in my twenties, I was writing about education. I'm very interested in different kinds and exploring different approaches. And in in my education, my own education, especially in my college years and university years, uh, I uh, experimented with different kinds of teaching. You know, you can do you teach sometimes, and while you're a, student at the university so i experimented with a lot of different ways of teaching and so when it came to do this i thought well i can do whatever i want all these other places that where i've taught people are breathing down my neck watching to see you know what i'm doing and if they approve or not nobody's here to approve so i feel very free and i really have i wouldn't do if i didn't enjoy it myself so much i wouldn't do it probably
3: yeah. And just to let people know, there are no PowerPoint presentations.
2: <laughs> no PowerPoints, no. <laughs> no PowerPoint presentations. Uh no, no. There's no
3: and also no like um step by steps or, or things like that. So if that's what you're looking no. for is something very didactic and here's no. here's how to live a soulful life, no. uh, you're not gonna get it there.
2: I think the way of soul is different from this more uh organized way. It's it's You don't follow, you don't follow, do things alphabetically or numerically. You don't put them in an order that's abstract. You you do things as they come up, you mix it up. Mm. You, You wouldn't see much order there. People often say to me, do I have to take this course before I take the next one? And I say, no, it doesn't make any difference. If you get this one ahead of time, it'll probably help you with the second one, but there's no logical connection that way. We just, We go from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. I think there is a deepening process, but it's not a logical order. No.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, (laughs) I really appreciate you spending so much time with us, Tom. It's been great to chat with you, and uh, I feel like you know um, talking to you for my 100th episode feels to me perfect. Um,
2: Congratulations for that. That is so great.
3: (laughs) You're one person that's kind of been there with me on this whole arc uh, from episode one to now. And uh, that's really saying something because I tend to be quite hermetic in the teachers that I mm-hmm. um, check out, you know. Uh, but, you know, I keep coming back to Thomas More. It just feels to me so, um, your way is so grounded and and balanced and uh, generous. I think is a good word for it. And um my wife's even reading uh, Religion of One's Own right now. And oh, she's, oh. you know, she's read your Ficino book because she's an astrologer. And she, of course, oh, yeah. loved that. But now she's reading Religion of One's Own, which is, mm. I think, more reflective of your your kind of approach to things. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So we're sharing that in, in bed at night as we read, uh, talking about Tom Very Moore. Good. And and Very that's good. nice because uh it's not it's not dogmatic and it's quite open and we can just it uh maybe it it, it ferments a discussion that is alive. Yeah. yeah. We're not arguing over um ideas necessarily.
4: Yeah, <laughs> so that's it's nice. Great. Yeah.
3: That's great. So yeah, just lots of appreciation to you, and uh we'll see you again in January, I'm sure.
2: <laughs> okay, Brian. Good luck to you. and um, Let's think about the next hundredth.
3: Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
2: Okay, bye.
0: The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.